In the Wild West world of podcasting, there is one podcast that is authentic and genuine and continues to stand tall in its originality. Based on a passion for his guests, their work, and his love of podcasting, Derek Thomas and Monday Morning Critic Podcast get amazing, diverse, unique guests found nowhere else. They include Hall of Fame athletes, Academy Award winners, Golden Globe winners, Super Bowl champions, Emmy winners, award-winning authors, award-winning film score composers, directors, trailblazers, pioneers, and venters, the variety and quality are endless. There is something for everyone. Derek Thomas is the hero you deserve. He's a silent guardian, a watchful protector. Welcome to Monday Morning Critic Podcast. Here is Derek Thomas. You okay? Were you in the crash? No. There was no earthly reason why Max Klein survived the crash of Flight 202. of reality. I think he thinks he's invulnerable. I've seen him with the Vietnam vets. You want to kill me, but you can't! And an extraordinary sense of life. He and your wife are the only survivors I can't reach. She won't talk and he won't admit the crash was bad. He says it was good. Says it was the best thing that ever happened to him. I can't explain it, but you're safe with me. So what are you telling me? That there's no God, but there's you? Is he falling in love with her? It's not love. He wants to save her. He's my best friend. It's like he sent me my own angel. He's not an angel. He's a man. I walked away from that crash with my life. That's what survived. The taste and touch and beauty of life. I won't give that up. Let me be part of it. Isabella Rossellini, Rosie Perez, John Turturro, in a film directed by Peter Weir. You have found Monday Morning Critic Podcast. Welcome to the podcast. I uh, just want to share some information before we get into the heart of episode 218. You can reach me at Twitter at MDMCritic. You can reach me on Instagram at Monday Morning Critic Podcast, on Facebook at Monday Morning Critic Podcast. My website is mmcpodcast.com. My email is mondaymorningcritic at gmail.com. And if you're looking for a place to listen to the podcast, uh, chances are you found it. But if you're looking for a uh, an alternative or you're looking for perhaps another way to listen to the podcast, I would recommend basically anything but YouTube. So Audible would be great, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Pandora, iHeartRadio, Podbean, Spotify, so on and so forth. There's so many avenues that I would appreciate. And if you like what you hear today and you like what you hear on other episodes, I would love a review uh, on on Apple Podcasts. That would be fantastic. I'd, I'd greatly appreciate that. The trailer you heard coming into the podcast was from the 1993 movie Fearless. Fearless is directed by Peter Weir, stars Jeff Bridges, Isabella Rossellini, Academy Award nominee Rosie Perez, John Turturro is in it, Benicio Del Toro is in it. Uh, you know, Peter Weir is a phenomenal director, by the way. Uh, we talk about Dead Poet Society. I mean, his list is long, and we'll get into that into the interview. Um, it is also written by my next guest, Rafael Iglesias, whose novel inspired the screenplay, which he also wrote. So it, it's just from start to finish, it, it 
everything about this movie works. And, um, and that's just the tip of the iceberg. Because when you look at this movie, uh, this movie had a lot of obstacles, and we get into this in the interview. But before I get into that part of it, this movie falls into the category of how the hell did I miss this movie? Every time I'm asked for a recommendation for a movie, Fearless is one of the first out of my mouth for movies that people should see. And the typical response, not perhaps word for word, but it's always, how the hell did this? I miss this movie? How did this movie get past me? And Fearless is just such an unbelievable movie. I, I, cannot, I certainly don't have the verbiage or, or words to, to, to describe how wonderful this movie is, how powerful it is. Um, it is very moving. It is very emotional. And it's one of those movies, as I said, people wonder, how did I get 30 years down the road and I haven't seen this movie? It is so good. Um, you know, if someone asked me, what is Jeff Bridges' best work? I would probably say Fearless, um, Hell or High Water would be up there. But Fearless certainly is his most overlooked work, right? In my opinion, and this is my opinion, um, The Big Lebowski is very, very overrated. That is my opinion. That is not a slight on any actor. It's just overrated in my opinion. I think it's taken a cult status. I think it's taken um, a place where it probably doesn't belong. I don't think it's as good a movie as everyone raves about, people that really love it. On the opposite end of that, I believe Fearless is underappreciated in that same way. Fearless should be equally as popular for different reasons. And it is just such a really, really well done movie. It's powerful. It's emotional. And you'll hear a lot of this in the interview, and I don't want to go through it. You know, sometimes, you know, I'm always thinking about age, where I am in my age. You know, you all, you. You always talk about when people tell you, you know, appreciate every minute, appreciate, you know, that time is the ultimate currency, which is all true. Um, even to the fact where sometimes you walk around and you're kind of numb to things, right? You're kind of numb. You you, you sometimes appreciate a moment, but probably not as much as you should. Um, and I really believe for a variety of reasons, Fearless does a lot to address that. Obviously, there's other things involved in Fearless, PTSD, an enormous plane crash, a big story that you're about to hear. But I do think that. I think that there is a there is something to the fact that we go through every day. You know, we wake up, we drudge through the day, we come home, we do our thing, we drudge through that, we try to make it through every day. And I think it gets to a point in life, to some degree, that we kind of wish our time away. Right, we we look forward to holidays or milestones or or big moments, and in between we've lost what life is, how life is supposed to be lived. We've become numb. Um, I find myself in that position often, you know, very much like Jeff Bridges' character. We, you, and, I, and again, I'm not saying for the same reasons, but you know, the the ability that uh, to, to recognize that life has value, that um, to not be numb, to 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 soak it all in, the good and the bad. Um, sometimes we're driven by one more than the other and we want to kind of stay and keep that balance, but the movie is absolutely breathtaking. It's emotional. Uh, have a box of Kleenex with you. You, you will feel every minute of this and it's just such a, a, a powerful piece of film. I, I cannot begin to tell you how much I love this. I mean, I know you hear me rave a lot about, you know, my guests and so forth. Well, that's two things. One, that's the reason they're on the podcast is because I love their work. And two, I am emotionally driven by what they've produced. So the fact that I am this, I don't know what else, this much of a fanboy, um, 
means how how the movie affected me. It really meant the world to me. And this is a, a piece of nostalgia, not that you guys care, but um, this is one of the first, I want to say, DVDs I ever owned. This was coming out right at the VHS to DVD transition. I want to say Fearless is the first DVD I ever owned. And I still have it. And I still have it. So, yeah, the movie has a lot of emotional value to me. The movie has a lot of sentimental value to me. And, you know, when a phenomenal writer like Rafael Iglesias agrees to come on the show, I'm blown away and I'm I'm just thrilled, you know. And one final thing before I send you over to Raphael in our interview, I just want to thank you if this is your first time listening to the podcast. Thank you so much. If you're a returning listener, thank you so much for your time. I, you know how much I value that. And if either way, if you guys would be so inclined, if you like what you hear in this interview or other interviews, I would certainly appreciate word of mouth or, as I mentioned in the beginning of the podcast, a review on Apple Podcasts. Um, not that you guys care or not that I'm gloating. I work really hard getting guests that move me, getting guests that I think you would love, um, really working hard editing, researching, getting this together, um, and really putting together what I believe, and I might be biased clearly, um, exclusive content, content that's worth listening to. Um, I, I really believe I work hard to, to, to get results that are honest, genuine, and truthful, and I'm proud of that. I'm proud of everything we do, and I must say that once a week. But I believe it in my heart. I certainly believe it. Okay, so here we go. Please welcome the awesomely talented Raphael Iglesias. My next guest is a very talented author and screenwriter. Some of his filmography includes From Hell and Fearless. Please welcome Raphael Iglesias. Raphael, thank you so much for being on the show today. Oh, it's my pleasure. I'm happy to be doing it. Yeah, as we as we were talking you know, off air, you, you mentioned how you were born in New York. I want to say Washington Heights, if I'm correct. Um, yeah, that's right. Um, what, what is so, and, and I know you, you, you kind of still live there, but what is so special about New York? I know you're very fond of it. I know it means a lot to you. Um, we're going to talk about Fearless eventually, and, and I know it would have been nice had Fearless been filmed in, in New York and not San Francisco, but you know, I know you're very fond of New York. Um, talk a little bit about that. Sure. Well, I mean, I, I was born there and have lived there all, but... Uh well, but really a couple of years of my 66. Um, so, um, and I've lived uh, always in Manhattan, but all over Manhattan, all the various neighborhoods, usually just before they got gentrified. <laughs> uh, um, and um, what, uh, what I love about New York City is that you can walk almost everywhere and see an extraordinary variety of people doing an extraordinary variety of things. Mm. Um, you can also, if, if uh, I've been a writer my whole life, so that means that I've spent a lot of time alone in a room and um, it's nice to be able to go out um, in the middle of the work day for a walk and sit and eavesdrop on people. Actually, it was, uh, it was one of my great pleasures in life was to just kind of, have a, a lunch by myself and listen very carefully to everything the people at the next table were saying and, <laughs> um, um, and in the streets and, and so on. And also the obvious stuff about New York that everybody knows is true, which is that any, anything you're interested in life, you will find other people there who are also interested in it. And you'll also find usually 
some of the best practitioners of every art form of every you know philosophy of every political stripe of every you know it, mm. it's the city is is really um extraordinary complete in its uh in its um in its totality of all of human activity and of all peoples and all kinds of things and that's very exciting um it's also possible to live in new york very quietly <laughs> mm. and with very little contact with people then that flexibility of the city that allows you to get very involved with things or to just be alone, especially for a writer, is kind of perfect. If you decide to take on a subject you know nothing about, it's easy to find the kind of people who would know about it and also be doing it in the city. Um, and so there's that. And then there's also the fact that because I was born there and have lived there my whole life, almost everybody I know and love lives there. So there's that too. <laughs> no, it's well said. And, 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 you know, you mentioned writing, you know, and I know your parents, um, Jose and Helen, were both writers, um, yep. very passionate about writing. Um, and, and it's really nice to see because often when I interview either authors or screenwriters or actors or whomever, um, most of the time the reaction I get from people is, you know, oh, no, what, what are you becoming an actor for or a writer for? You know, get something that's that's concrete, that's, you know, eight to five. And I've said this in other interviews, but it must be a little bit of a different view that you have parents that really must have been very pleased that you were pursuing writing. That must have, that, That's a change for me to hear. And it sounds like they were very passionate writers. They were. They were both born into very poor families uh, and grew up during uh, – they were born in 1919 and 1915. So their formative years were in the Depression and then World War II. So – and they were very, very poor, didn't get to um, – my father eventually on the GI Bill got to do a year of college after he fought in the war. But um, their love of, of – of reading and then their intense desire on both their parts to be writers started very young for them when they were in their teens. And, and it was very hard fought for them. My father didn't get to publish his first book until he was 43. And my mother didn't get to publish her first novel until she was 56. Um, so, uh, it was, you know, I, in a sense, I was raised um, by two people who were trying to become writers very, very hard. My father had a full time job and was writing on the weekends and at night every day. My mother didn't really begin working on what turned out. It wasn't really her first novel. She had tried to write when she was much younger um, until really I was 10 or so. And, and uh, as the youngest of her three kids, she, you know, she at last had more time to devote to it. Um, so watching them become writers while I was young, uh, made it seem to me like, uh, it was something anyone could do, <laughs> mm. Mm. <laughs> which, um, and it made it something I very much wanted to do since they cared about it so much. Um, it was a kind of indirect way of getting their attention. And yes, they were thrilled when I, um, they were thrilled. They were, uh, but as working class people, for whom writing was not, um, you know, something that they could just automatically do. Uh, my mother in particular did have one rule. She said, you can be a writer, but you have to support yourself writing. Mm. So, um, they weren't, um, they weren't just starry eyed about it. Um, also the fact is they didn't have any money, so they couldn't help me. <laughs> right. A writer. right. I did have to support myself. Um, and, uh, but my father in particular used to say, he was an extravagant 
person and the way he expressed his opinions. But he used to say there were only two worthwhile things to be in life, a revolutionary or an artist. <laughs> so uh, it's, uh, they were very different as parents in that respect. Very different. Yeah, and, and you know, I, I, can can you recall? I mean, I'm sure there's many things, but can you recall? Because you're you're so one of your sons. Um, they're both very successful. One is a co-founder of Vox. The other is a, a novelist. Um, can you think of something that your parents passed to you as far as um, knowledge about writing? Maybe a technique. Maybe a way to see things. Maybe a way to kind of put together a storyboards. Something along those lines that you've passed to your son, Nicholas, can you think of something that they've passed to you and then you've kind of forwarded to your son? Um, to my sons, Matthew and Nicholas, the, um, uh, what I, when they were little, um, and they both got interested in reading, um, I did something that I, uh, what I did was I discovered, I paid attention to what they liked to read which was actually quite different in each case. And in each case was somewhat different than what I like to read at their age. Mm. And what I did was I, I, I paid a lot of attention to what they most enjoyed. And then I went out and got them as many books or car- or comics or whatever it was <laughs> as possible in that area. Uh, and I didn't pay any attention to trying to give them quote unquote good books. Um, similarly, when they began to write uh, much to my, my first wife, their mother, um, died when they were, um, 21 and 18 respectively. Mm. So, um, and she was a wonderful mother, but she was quite shocked when they first began writing that I didn't, and they gave it to me that I didn't correct their grammar or their spelling. I couldn't correct their spelling anyway. I'm a terrible speller. <laughs> um, but, um, I didn't do that at all. I, 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 I made no attempt to make their writing be correct. Uh, my main concern was that they write freely and as, and as easily as possible. And I knew that the grammar and the spelling and all of that would come later. Right. Um, that's the only things – I think those are the things I did that surprised other parents who knew me because I was a professional writer. They were, I think, very surprised that I, you know, that I didn't think it was – important to give them books I admired or respected. What I thought was that if you learn to love to read, which is not really, it's really an acquired taste. It's not really something that comes naturally to most people. Um, that if you learn to love to read, then you will eventually read good books. <laughs> it'll just happen. It, it, it'll happen. Um, and, um, and that if instead reading feels to you like a, a, a job or, or a school task, you're likely to shy away from it as soon as possible. Yeah, and, and it's funny that you say about you know the spelling because I, I would think any parent that you know has raising a child you know getting starting on reading and writing that it's always all about content, right? The spelling and grammar that that can be adjusted down the road. I mean, you can't mm-hmm. fix content if you lack a, a good narrative, if you lack a good story. That's hard to repair, um, you right. know, and it seems like it's just sound advice. Like for for anybody listening to this podcast now who has children or is, or is a writer, to me that would be a, a huge valuable lesson, Raphael. Right, and as for storytelling, um, uh, I think actually reading um, reading eventually good writers is really how you learn. I really think you learn that by osmosis. Um, there later on, once you're really trying to write, there's a lot that one can learn about technique and craft, of course, as there always is with anything really. But at first, initially you really learn it by simply experiencing 
how other people tell stories. Um, your kids growing up, who, who did they read that? And you can throw your, your opinion here too. Who did they read that they felt or that you felt uh, were, were solid writers? Is there someone in particular they enjoyed reading that that was a, a writer they kind of looked up to? And same question for you. Is there a particular writer that you feel kind of stands out above the rest or was influential on you or your kids found influential on, on their writing? Well, um, I can't really speak for my kids because I've actually never asked them that question. My son, Nicol- my son Matthew, who, who um, writes a lot about politics and philosophy and housing policy and so on and so forth, and read a great deal of history. And, uh, you know, I mean, I, I noticed um, pretty early on that writers who were very good, um, like Stephen Jay Gould, at writing um, – on scientific subjects or nonfiction subjects in a way that was accessible. I, I noticed that that was something he really appreciated. And in fact, his, one of his great strengths is to be able to write about very abstruse subjects that are difficult for people to understand in a way that they can understand um, and grasp it, at least while they're reading it. I find often when I'm reading him, I understand exactly how the world operates. And then two hours later, I've forgotten. But that has to do, that has to do with my, my, my brain being a sieve <laughs> these days. Um, my son Nicholas was a huge fan of um, fantasy and science fiction, mm. and he read so much of it that I can't even begin to think of. I, I and I they were not actually genres that I was particular, especially fantasy that that I knew well. I I did happen to to buy him <laughs> George R R Martin's series well before it was famous. I, I by chance because I was simply he was reading so much. Wow! I, just was, I was just emptying the shelves, and so he was he he knew that well before. But I think probably the greatest influence on him was Tolkien. Mm. He used he used to not only read all Tolkien several times over, but he would listen at night to audio tapes of Tolkien before going to sleep. Um, so that's in his case, I know that's that's true. Um, but Matthew also read a lot of pretty obscure um, um, historians whose names I can't really remember at this point. Um, as for me. Um, when I was very young, when I was a boy, I read a lot of Dickens and a lot of Twain Mm. and they were both very influential. I loved them a lot. I don't know that they were influential. I loved them a lot. Um, in general, before I began, I began writing quite young, but before I began writing, I was reading a lot of the 19th century novelists like Balzac, of course, Tolstoy and Dostoevsky, who were very influential, but Balzac, I got particularly, I had a particularly fun time with at the age of 15, just before I began writing. And um, in general, I, there was just a lot of 19th century literature, especially the kind of long novels um, that I think most closely resemble episodic, you know, streaming television now, the mm. sort of 10 episode, five season stories. Um, they're very similar in the structure and uh, the way those are present, presented. Um, but, you know, uh, in truth, um, there are so many good novelists, so many great novelists that one can read that it that it's it's really hard for me to think of a favorite in that sense. Right? Um, they're just each of them brings. I mean, it's what the novel has. The great strength of the novel is that you're really encountering an individual in a very complete way, the way a particular person sees the world and 
and feels about the world. And it's such a complete one-to-one encounter that there are so many, so many great novels, and they're so different one from another. I mean, if you, you if you go from reading Virginia Woolf to reading um, uh, Balzac, it's it, mm. it couldn't be. Mm. It's as different as though you're going from reading a. a uh, a detective novel to a fantasy novel. Right. It's, it's ex- even though it's the real world, it's an extraordinarily different intelligence and view and, and perspective. Yeah, it's really well said, Raphael. And, and, I, and I wonder, you know, I was do- when I was doing research about, um, you know, your family and your life and so forth, um, it really got me thinking about Stephen King and his son, Joe Hill. Like, mm-hmm. um, you know, they had, they had this great rapport. Joe Hill has, has established himself like as a great writer, as your sons have. Um, mm-hmm. Does I, I wonder if your kids felt pressure early on because their dad is this really successful and talented writer and screenwriter and author. Um, I wonder if there was pressure on their end. I mean, not from you, but just in general, the way the life, just the way life is, you know, you sound super supportive, like a great human being that, you know, just from hearing you speak. Um, I wonder if there was pressure internally from them just naturally, you know, um, hey, your father is is Raphael, the author, the screenwriter. I wonder if that existed to some degree. Um, Well, I can't speak for them, but I mean, uh, you know, uh, I'm, I'm sure... I think what they did is what is easiest for sons to do, which is, and, and daughters to do, um, which is that they were writers in a different area. I mean, really, Nicholas writes fantasy and science fiction, and I don't do either. Um, and Matthew really is a nonfiction writer. Mm. So, uh, you know, they're writers, of course, and I'm a writer too, but it is slightly different, the work they do. So it's not, um, I think that helps some. Um, also, uh, I can't really speak for them. I don't know if they felt any internal pressure about it. I, um, I, um, I never really felt that I was an enormous success. Um, certainly not a success like Stephen King. So I didn't worry so much that they would feel intimidated by how successful I'd been. No matter how well known I was, it was very minor. And I felt they could easily go out into the world and become quite well-known. Matthew, for example, is much better known than I am. And he, I'm sure most people don't even realize that his father was a writer most of the time, especially in the, in the field he writes in. Yeah, and that's the part that really got me thinking because Matthew, very successful as Joe Hill is, you're, I think you're very successful as, you know, I mean, I mean, degrees, I guess, really don't matter in this case. But yeah, I mean, that's, that, that's well said again. Um, and I know, I think you taught, right, did you teach film writing at NYU, Raphael? I did for a couple of semesters, I, I, I did, and, and I also taught once at, um, at uh, Emerson, but um, uh, just a few semesters. How did you like that? I mean, did you find, because I've talked to actors who have taught acting and they've shared stories of, you know, when they have students, the students really are eager and everyone's in it for a different reason, whether it's writing or acting. How did, how did you find that experience? Well, I love teaching. I think most people do. Um, I, but I found it interfered quite a lot with my writing (laughs) because I was, um, for better or for worse, I was, my mind was preoccupied with the stories of a group of students for the period that we were doing the, you know, the semester. And um, I really found it hard to concentrate on my own work. Um, so although I did it a few semesters, I stopped doing it for that reason, because, because I really felt it was taking away my ability to, to work all the time. And it's just, 
I've really done nothing else in my life. I started writing when I was um, 15 and I've never done anything else. And I'm used to spending a few hours a day, most days writing. And it has, it's got some kind of almost chemical effect for me. If I don't do it, if I don't do it for a number of days in a row, I start getting kind of anxious and testy. (laughs) So, and teaching is, is very hard work. Um, uh, and it really does take away your, the writers I know, in fact, who need to teach for a living. Um, it's can be a real problem for them, you know, uh, and it's a lucky thing that they have a few months off in the summer and so on, but it would be especially hard for me, uh, because I'm so used to just being able to write every day on at least something that I feel like writing. Sure, sure. And, you know, you, you've been through a lot as a human being, as we all have. Um, in 2014, you, you, you put together a really powerful piece in Slate about abuse. Uh, you had a very serious car accident, uh, which we'll touch on a little bit later. How much of your experiences, Raphael, have, and I hope this doesn't sound like a stupid question, how, many, how much of your experiences factored into who you are as an author? Um. Well, I'm a, I'm a, uh, uh, I'm an autobiographical writer. And pretty I should much, say writer, not author. Always. I should say writer. Yeah. My, my, yeah. My, yeah. Um, no, that's okay. Um, I, um, I draw a lot and very heavily from my own experiences and often write works that are so close to my life that people sometimes mistake them for memoirs. Um, and, so my life and my experiences are integral to to what I write. In fact, writing for me is a kind of way of processing them emotionally. Um, and uh, so it's, you know, they've had tremendous impacts on me. The, the car accident you're referring to led to my writing Fearless, which was my seventh novel and my first uh, produced film. And that encounter, that sudden encounter, unexpected encounter with the possibility that I would die, started me thinking about what would that be like. And it led, it took seven years before I came up with the finished idea for Fearless. But from that car accident on, and my response to it, which was a kind of elation that I was alive, uh, what's known as pink cloud syndrome, Mm. uh, led me to create that story. It took me seven years to figure out exactly how to do it, but it was completely inspired by that experience. And my having been abused, um, uh, molested is really the, is really the more accurate word because there was no physical violence, um, as an eight year old, a few times, um, by a 40 some odd year old man led to, I've often tried to work. I eventually published a novel about it, but it also past traumas having, reawakening in the present day is a pretty much a consistent theme in all my work, no matter what tone or genre it has. Mm. That's pretty much a consistent theme, even in, even when doing other people's adaptations. When I adapted um, Ariel Dorfman's play for Roman Polanski to direct in Death and the Maiden, even that is a story that's really about a past, the reawakening of the past trauma in the present. Um, so it, they've had a tremendous impact on me. Um, and I, I sort of assume that people's experiences have a tremendous impact on every writer, even if it doesn't seem apparent in how, you know, in the one-to-one relationship. Yeah, that's really well said. Um, you know, we, you mentioned Fearless. We talk about, you know, I have to say I have a lot of thoughts on Fearless, a lot. Um, mm-hmm. But you mentioned the process of, of getting this 
into you know getting your screenplay. I mean, this was a process that I mean, there had to be times where you had to be. I mean, this was the amount of time you spent. I mean, was there ever a time where you said, you know what? I, I can't take it. It's just because this. There were years and years of you going on, and, and from my research, it seemed like the studio just didn't know what to do with this. I mean, long story short, I'm, I'm really abbreviating this, but I, I feel like today in movie making, people would have been happy to take a, a chance, and they do eventually take a chance on it. But it, it requires a lot of convincing. I felt, whereas this is such a beautiful story, and I can't believe that you know that they. People like to play it safe. They like to play it safe. This was a story that deserved a movie, and, and I really wish you didn't have to put all those years into getting this made. I almost feel like the time and experience should have been a lot easier for you. I feel like this was a very arduous uh, process for you. Um, well, actually, I'm sorry. I I, uh, I didn't mean to suggest that it was it was took a long time to get it made as a movie, actually. It took a long time for me to write it as a novel first. Um, and that's because, and then there was a lot of resistance. I had a lot of resistance from book publisher about that. Um, and as for the movie, I wrote the script on spec and there was resistance at the studio about buying it, but from producer Mark Rosenberg and Paula Weinstein, who were asking them to buy it and make it, um, but they, especially Mark uh, Rosenberg in particular, got the script to Peter Weir. And once Peter Weir said he wanted to film it, then the studio just agreed. Then there was a lot of arguments about casting and how it should proceed and, and all of that. Um, but in those days especially, if you got an A-list director to say he, he or she wanted to make a movie, they got made. And that's really how it happened. Um Nowadays, that isn't even true, actually. There, there are very few A-list directors. There's, the whole concept of an A-list director getting a movie made has shrunk down to like just a couple of people. Mm, mm. Um, but, um, you know, that's movies are primarily an entertainment form and a broad entertainment form designed to make as much money as possible. And a movie about how people relate to death <laughs> it doesn't doesn't sound like a commercial film, um, and uh, where the studio really didn't stick with the movie, and where they really weren't uh, supportive, was after it was released. They had a very um, they had what was called an academy strategy. They released it in only four theaters initially to get reviews, mm. and since since the initial reviews were not wild raves, and because they w were up against Schindler's List and the and the piano and a lot of other big films, um, they bailed on us. And as a result, Fearless was never in more than, I think, five or 600 theaters nationwide. Um, and although it's very, very well known within the movie business, um, most people just never got a chance to see it. That's where I think the studio's lack of commitment to it really damaged it. Not so much in the process of getting it made, but in the process of releasing it. Yeah, and, and you mentioned you know, this. This movie had a lot of things happen to it, and it's too bad because, it, it, in my opinion, this is my thoughts on this. It's Jeff Bridges' most underrated. It, it, it could be argued that it's his best work. Um, you know, and well, he he was spectacular in it. Yeah, yeah. It's it's it, it, and a lot of people. I don't want to say don't know about this movie, but it's under the radar 
and it's not fair that it is because it is such a well done movie, you know, driven well, by you. driven by your writing. And you mentioned it had some bad luck going up against Schindler's List was was not great luck, you know, the theater not knowing how to really market it or the way they did as you just said, not a great strategy. Um, but it doesn't take away from the quality of this movie. And I, I, anyone that ever asked me, you know, what can I watch? What do you recommend? Fearless is one of the first movies out of my mouth. Thank you. Yeah, I mean, you talk about two. I mean, Jeff Bridges from what I from what I read. Uh, before I get to this, I did want to say you you mentioned um, Mark Rosenberg. He did a lot to get this movie made. And did it? Did he mm-hmm. pass during filming? Did did I have that right? Yes, he was on um, a movie being directed by Steve Clovis called Flesh and Bone. Uh, Paula, his wife and also his partner, Paula Weinstein, uh, was really responsible day to day for all the work on Fearless. And Mark went off and worked on Flesh and Bone since they had two movies shooting simultaneously. And while he was on the set of Flesh and Bone, he he died suddenly, um, Mm. which was a a big loss uh, Well, a big loss for lots of people and for the business, but especially a big loss for me because the reason I actually became a screenwriter in the first place was because of Mark. Um, wow. And uh, so, and he was just a, a big champion of my work, a guy I loved, but he was also, <laughs> um, he was also just really instrumental in my film career. So that death also had a big impact. It, I, I think um, uh, uh, really more than anyone, given that I wouldn't have become a screenwriter first place and given that he bought the movie and got it got bought my script and got it into the hands of peter weir he really deserves you know an enormous amount of the credit for it happening at all yeah earlier we talked about you know the a-list director you mentioned that really well well said point and you mentioned peter weir just now for those listening peter weir has directed master and commander absolutely underrated film dead poet society truman story so peter weir knows his way around knows his way around a movie um yeah he's a great he's a great director yeah Yeah, uh, a fantastic job on the film. Uh, what was your rapport like with him? Did you feel like, and I'm sure you've been asked this in other interviews, did you feel like, I, I, I feel like he understood your vision. And there was rumors that yeah. Mel Gibson was attached to the film for a while, but Mel Gibson couldn't put two and two together with this film. He could not understand what Jeff Bridges almost immediately understood, um, the, your vision. Well, what happened, yeah, what happened with uh, Mel, uh, they had done two films together, Peter Weir and Mel Gibson, um, early on in, in Peter's career. And Mel, Gibson's career, in fact, it, it, um, the year of living dangerously, and also um, Gallipoli, and um, and in many ways they helped make Mel famous as an actor. So, uh, and at the time, 1992, when the movie was being cast, uh, Mel Gibson was either the number one box office star or number two, or you know he was <laughs> way up there. Right. And Warner Warner's was very very eager to have him play the lead so and they said to peter will you, will you go to mel and he did he had a slight reservation about doing so but um and gibson was then preparing his first the first movie he directed which was the man without a face is that yes i, yep. I may have the t- title you, wrong. you got it he was he was prepping it and uh or about to prep it and he said to peter i don't really I don't really totally understand why you want to do this script so much, but I'm happy to do it with you, but I need to do my, finish my film first. And so can you wait a year? And the studio very much wanted him to wait a year for, for Gibson because he was so big. And Peter said, well, 
I really don't want to wait a year. And he had right from the beginning wanted Jeff Bridges actually to play the part. So in a way, I think he was, he was sort of looking for an excuse to, to back off of Mel. Um, and, uh, um, but I don't think you can blame Mel Gibson for wanting to direct his own movie first. I mean, that's right. a natural, that's a natural human instinct. Um, the studio, however, was not at all. It may be hard for people to understand this now, but Jeff Bridges at the time, was not regarded by movie studios as a box office star. They all thought he was a wonderful actor, but as one of the Warner's executives said at the time, they thought he was a character actor who had the looks of a lead actor, but wasn't a move. It wasn't a guy who, as they would put it, could open a picture, meaning get people into the theaters in the first weekend. And so they were very reluctant to go with him and very annoyed with Peter about him being his next choice. They wanted him to go to other bigger stars um, and Peter refused. And then they made the mistake of trying to get him to agree by bribing him. That is, they said, if you, if you go to one of these other actors on our list and get them to do it, we'll give you $40 million to make the picture and we'll pay your full fee. But if you insist on Jeff, uh, we'll give you $20 million half to make the movie and you'll have to cut your fee by one third, and Jeff will have to cut his fee by one Jeez. third, and Mark and Paula will have to cut their fees by one third. <sighs> and that was exactly the wrong thing to say to Peter, who's an artist. And you don't say to an artist, "Be a whore." That's right. Really- <laughs> That's exactly what they're saying. <laughs> yeah, right. So, um, so Peter said fine, and Jeff said fine, and Mark and Paula said fine, and they all cut their fees, and they did it. And Peter, and and this Paul Weinstein gets enormous credit for figured out a way of making that movie, which is spectacular looking for half the price. Um, no CGI and, too. I mean, it looked amazing. Yeah, no, no, yeah, no CGI. And, um, you know, um, so I owe a lot to all of them for having, you know, take gone the extra mile. That may be what you're thinking of in terms of Warner's resistance to the film. Um, but you know, in Warner's defense, that's, that's completely standard stuff in the movie business. It, it, it was in those days, uh, and, I, and even today, I imagine, the notion that there was an actor who can open a picture was vital to a, a movie studio. And I once, you know, when I've, when the logic, the business logic of it was explained to me, I certainly understood it, which is if you don't open the movie, it doesn't stay in the theaters. And if it doesn't stay in the theaters, then eventually, you know, the wide audience never gets to see it. So, um, you know, all of that is just the reality of it being show business. I mean, it's not, <laughs> it's not an art form to them. It's right. business. Yeah. That's, that's, that's unbelievable. You know, I have to say, I mean, I thought I read this too, Raphael, that, um, Jeff Bridges enjoyed when you were on set so he can kind of pick your brain and kind of connect with you on um, questions about, you know, the, the, the script and the story. Uh, any truth to that? Am I, am I reading that correctly? Um, yeah, well, actually, uh, uh, that was a byproduct of Peter's approach with me on the film. Peter and I got very close and we had a, a great time on the movie. And it was very important to Peter that... Um, uh, you know, that I'd be part of it and at the rehearsals and, and so on. And he also very much wanted people to read my novel. Jeff was one of Jeff often, uh, would read the scene in my novel that preceded him doing it. So, because the novel was full of the characters, inner thoughts and stuff like that. 
Um, and Jeff asked Peter just before we started shooting, if he could have dinner with me, um, and just discuss things. And Peter said to me, I've never let a writer meet with like lead alone, but I'm going to let you do that and so on. But that was because Peter and I were very close and, and had worked so closely together on, um, every aspect of the script and his preparation, in fact, which he was very generous and actually, to be honest with you, the five produced movies, all the directors I've worked with have been the same about this. Uh, there's Everybody knows the cliche of how the screenwriter is cut out of the process and is treated badly, but I, I've never I've, I've never had a director treat me that way. Mm. Um, and um, I've always found that they liked very much being in a kind of partnership with the writer, uh, provided you don't, you know, in any way mess up their authority on the movie. I mean, I never questioned anything they did in front of someone else. If I had a question about it, I would speak to them privately. And that's the only, the only thing that may, uh, that I would give as a tip to a screenwriter if they're curious. Um, it's just not fair to a director to quote unquote embarrass them in front of other people. Right. Um, if you have a reservation, you should definitely express it, but you should express it privately. Um, and, um, so, I mean, really everybody on the movie uh, I, I, I was great on, on Fearless. And, and the truth is, on all of them, I can only think of one or two instances where people on movies were difficult. Um, and usually it's stuff that's coming from the studio or it's some financial concern. It doesn't, it's ne- almost never because of the artists involved. Yeah, and you're in a unique position where you were the author, are the author, and and the screenwriter. Mm-hmm. You don't you don't find that often mm-hmm. at all. I mean, usually you're right. The screenwriter right. is kind of cut out of the process, or the it, it's never kind of a. So that's a unique role to be in, and a, I, I got to imagine a great position for you to be in. Yeah, it was. It was. It was a great experience. There was everything about it was a great experience. The release of the film was disappointing, but everything else about it was spectacular. I, the truth is, I've liked working even on the movies that I didn't think came out so well. I, I really enjoyed working on them and working with the people I worked with. I've never, uh, you know, um, I mean, sure. Movie people are wacky mm. <laughs> and they can be very difficult, but they're, they're fun, but it's because their names are on it. I mean, I, it's, it's also, it may just be the way I was raised. If your name is on the movie, that means you're taking the heat with me. Mm. So even if you, even if you're, you and I disagree, you're, you have skin in the game as it were. Um, it's the, the people I have trouble with usually the studio executives who in my mind don't have skin in the game. They're not going to really, it, every once in a while there's a disaster so big that it gets a studio executive fired, but that's pretty rare. Um, right. they, they go on. It doesn't, the damage done to, if a movie flops is, is, are, are the people whose names are on it. Um, not the people who financed it in my view. Yeah, and I've, I've heard nightmare stories of studios tinkering with the ending of movies, tinkering with the editing. Sure. I mean, that's just a – I mean, in my opinion, I mean, if you hire somebody to do a movie and you give them the, the capital or whatever to, to get it made, that, that the studio should say, here you go, and just back off. But unfortunately, not everybody is like that. I did want to say we talked about you know the movie had a limited release, but I love Siskel and Ebert's review of this movie. I think I remember seeing this when I was – I think it was like 20 years old at the time in 93. Mm-hmm. And then right. it was just such a – they both loved this movie. Um, and it was a really articulate breakdown. And I shouldn't go any mm-hmm. further without saying how amazing Rosie Perez, 
who was nominated for an Academy yeah. Award was. I, I can't believe I've gone this long talking about Fearless and I have not mentioned her name. Um, yeah, but, Rosie was spectacular. Yeah. Oh, absolutely fabulous. You know, and I've been dying to ask you a few questions, you know, one of which is, you know, there are times where I feel like I'm numb in life, where I should be appreciating a moment more than I do. Like there's a sense of like numbness, um, you know, mm-hmm. and I always felt that that crash brought a, brought clarity in Max, right? Um, mm-hmm. Is it, again, I, I risk asking a stupid question here, but is in any way can can his experience obviously not a crash but the experience of never kind of having that roller coaster in life and learning to have fear and not have fear was it a positive in any way did anything good come out of that crash uh for max was there anything positive um to come out of that sure yeah i mean the idea of uh, max's character is that he up until the crash has been living a very fearful uh, life, both creatively and in terms of uh, his relations with people, that he's been too accommodating and um, and too worried and just generally too anxious. Um, and being turned inside out uh, by the crash in which he gets sort of an adrenaline addiction and becomes um, too fearless, um, you know, the idea is that he's brought back to Earth at the end of, of the movie once his, his wife uh, resuscitates him from his, uh, you know, self-created anaphylactic shock. And the and he says, what, what in the novel, it's a little bit more stated than it is in the finished film. It was actually in my original screenplay. In that final thing, he's supposed to say, I'm alive, I'm alive, I'm alive, and right. I'm afraid. And I'm afraid. And, that, and that's really the best state of, life to be in to celebrate life and to enjoy life but to also know that you're supposed to be afraid right <laughs> that fear is part fear is part of the component of, of of being fully alive um and you know so yes in fact one of the big things that slowed me down in writing the novel um was when i first thought of the arc of um of uh max Klein's uh, jeff bridges character story i um I thought, well, I can't write a novel about an airplane crash in which the only character has a great time. <laughs> right, right. <laughs> that's, that's really fake. Right. Um, and that's when I began to research plane crashes and discovered that it wasn't unusual for a small child to be killed. And I thought, well, there's nothing worse that could happen to somebody than having their child, their baby killed. Mm. Um, and that's when I began to think of the, of the character of Carla. And began doing that research into Kula Ross and various other things about the effects on people of losing a child. Um, that's partly why it took me seven years before I began the novel. Um, so, yes, for Max, it is, on the whole, a positive experience. It's a horrible loss in terms of his partner, and, and it's a terrifying experience. But it liberates him, at least when he survives it, finally by going through it completely, it, it gives him a sense that he was simply too timid and too locked up as a human being. I, I must think about this scene regularly. Um, the one where he's in the Volvo and she's in the back seat with the toolbox and he rams into the wall. Yeah. I got to tell you, mm-hmm. I think about that a lot. I, I, you know, just he's trying to help her in the, in the, I, I would say the, the way he approaches it probably isn't ideal, but 
It just goes to, it's just such a powerful, there's so many instances like that throughout this movie. Um, As you're watching his performance unfold, right, Raphael, his uh, Bridges' performance unfold, does it Mm -hmm. ever hit home with you? Is there ever a scene where he's so on his game that it reminds you of a moment you might have, or two, that you've had, you know, with the car accident? Was there ever a moment where you're like, my God, like, I I feel like in in a way this man has completely nailed what I've gone through in, in my life. It was it, or were there many moments like that in the film? Um, eerie, well, I guess you car, could say it, it, the, 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 the car crash that I was in, that was the original inspiration for the, for the whole thing, um, was a car crash in which a close friend of mine was driving and I was in the passenger seat and we were heading, uh, he lost control of the car. And we went across an oncoming lane of traffic and we were heading directly for a, a bank of trees and I was young and stupid. I was uh, 26, and I hadn't buckled my seatbelt. And I realized that if we hit the trees the way we were going, I was going to go through the windshield and either be dead or want to be. Um, and during that sort of elongated second, I thought, oh, this is it. This is how I'm going to die. And that moment is recreated in the novel and then recreated in the movie, mm. which Jeff looks up at the camera and says, this is it. This is the moment of my death. Um, and that moment, that elongated second in which I was convinced, Oh, I'm, this is how it's going to happen. This is, this is the end. Um, is, you know, it's very tangible for me in the movie when it's recreated. Um, there are many other moments in the movie that have nothing to do with things that happen to me that are invented, right. in which Jeff is incredibly moving and incredibly powerful. And, uh, um, yeah, I mean, you know, I wish every novelist had the chance to um, write themselves and work so closely with such talented people that they completely or almost completely fulfill everything that's in your book. And that in, in and then also add some things. To it. <laughs> right. Um, you know, the process, the truth is, and you if you talk to enough screenwriters and they speak to you frankly, the truth is is that the, one of the reasons screenwriters tend to be embittered folks <laughs> is that most of the time what happens when you go from script to movie is that there are losses. I mean, you have to remember that as a writer, when you're writing, the set design is perfect, the shot is perfect. The dialogue is spoken perfectly. When you're writing, there's no loss in the practical world. You know, right. there's, there's no miscast actors. That, that doesn't happen when you're writing. When you're writing, it's an ideal. Right. Um, so it's natural that when you translate that through a couple of hundred people doing all this work, that something is different. And from the point of view of the writer, something is lost. What you hope for and what works well with talented movie makers is that yes something is lost or something is not achieved but other things are added that you didn't think of and that are wonderful in and of themselves uh with fearless i had the great experience of very little being lost some of it had to be lost because the translation from book to movie um very little of it was lost and a lot was gained so that's very rare that's a really rare experience for most novelists to have and I, i was very lucky i had it yeah, and, and the movie really does a beautiful job, as does your book, about really 
presenting how delicate life is and it got me thinking to those those people uh Raphael on 9/11 that either um canceled their flight or slept through their flight and it, it almost must mm-hmm. be the same feeling right cuz the, the the delicate balance between life or, and death and, and and why some people you know pass and why some people don't it just it's such a powerful powerful book and, and, and movie well, thank you. I, but that's, yeah, I mean, it, what it's about is that death is not in our control, which right. is very upset, upsetting to people. <laughs> it's not in our control. We do a lot of things to try to make it be under con- our control, and we try to make sense of it. Uh, um, but the truth is we can't really make sense of it. It's um, And we can't really – and it's not in our control. And um, that's – it's hard to make a movie about that, and Peter and everybody did a great job getting as close as I think you can. Yeah, and the cinematography for those listening, phenomenal, and the music from the Gypsy yeah, Kings Alan, to you 2 so good. Yeah, yeah. Alan Davio, who was the wonderful cinematographer, died uh, this past winter, so um, he did he, he did a wonderful job. Yeah, and before I let you go, the other really underappreciated, under underrated movie I feel like is From Hell. Um, really great. Oh, thank you. Yeah, oh, really great movie. Um, and I think a lot of people love this movie. Um, I got to say, the Hughes brothers—they're a talented duo. I mean, between uh, they were great. Oh yeah. my gosh! Just before I let you go, talk a little bit about From Hell. Um, again, a must-see movie. If people are asking me, um, talk a little bit about that if you don't mind. No, I don't mind at all. Um, actually, I was going to turn From Hell down. From Hell had been worked on for many, many years with Terry Hughes um, in development, first at one studio, and then I, I, I can't remember what was the first studio, and then it was moved to Fox, and Alan and Albert had been working on it for many years as well. Um, and finally, although the movie had been something that the studio, Bill Mechanic, I think, was running it at the time, Bill's a, a, a lovely guy, they had intended to make it, but they were not happy with Terry's last draft and it went from being a green light to sort of a, a red light uh, and I uh, at the time was um, uh, you know fielding offers on different projects and adaptations and I suddenly got offered this and I was sent the Terry's latest draft and I was also given the Alan Moore graphic novel and I read the graphic novel and I thought huh why have they turned this into a police procedural? The graphic novel is much more interesting. So I got on a phone call with, uh, he was on the West Coast and I was on the East Coast with uh, Alan. And at that time, Alan and Albert, sort of, Alan was always sort of the public face. You didn't get to talk to Albert until you were actually working on the project. And um, I said to Alan, so how come, I'd be happy to take the graphic novel and adapt that. How come you guys are doing it this way? And he said, well, the studio just really wants to do it this way, that there's no, we can't do it the way the graphic novel does it. It's too weird and too strange. And, uh, they just, this is the format they want to do it. And I said, uh-huh. And I said, well, there's a couple of things about it I don't think works, and I don't know. And the truth is I was going to pass. Um, and uh, I think Alan could sort of hear that in my voice. And, um, and he said, so you really... Uh, I said, well, I'm not really sure why we're doing it. I said, why do you want to do it, Alan? And he said, oh, we want to make a movie about a ghetto in which there are no black people. Hmm. <laughs> and I said, oh, wow, I get it. I'm in. <laughs> um, and then I did an adaptation that was much more focused. And this is why some people 
don't like the movie. Much more focused not on Alan Moore's quite brilliant graphic novel, but on what the studio was interested in doing, which was a police procedural. Um, but what I did in the draft I wrote <clears throat> that was filmed um, was really do what Alan and Albert wanted, which was where the Irish take the place of what we think of as blacks and in the modern world. They're the poor, oppressed, horribly treated people. Mm. Um, and, and women, um, and to some extent Jews. Um, and I wrote it that way, you know, here's a, here's a, (laughs) here's a story about a ghetto in which there are no black people. Um, and, uh, it was a really interesting experience and I loved working with them. They were really, really fun to work with. Yeah, uh, just just a really great movie. Um, anything that you wanted to throw out there that you, I mean, I, I've, you, you've done, and I focused on too. There's there's other projects you've done that are really well done. Um, anything mm-hmm. around the corner? How, how's the writing situation look for you? I mean, times are obviously difficult for a plethora of reasons, but um, just talk a little about what's going on, what's coming up. Anything you want to throw out there? Uh, sure. I, my I, uh, my wife and I, uh, Ann Packer, who I met and married and fell in love with five years ago, she's also a wonderful novelist. She and I have been writing together now for the past three or four years, and we're working, we're in development right now with for Bad Robot and Warner Brothers TV on a project that we, a limited series, in which we hope to follow four or five, um, it's a fictional story, but we hope to follow four or five people who have cancer mm. and the show isn't really about their medical treatment so much or about the doctors. It's really about the effects on them and their families and their friends of going through the treatments, story about resilience in the face of illness. And, um, some of the themes of fearless, of course, how you deal with the sudden appearance of the possibility of death in your life. Um, it's based, we got, it's based on a nonfiction book by Jerry Grubman called the anatomy of hope. And, uh, but as I say, it's a fictional story and we're in development on that. And, but I'm, we're both very much in love with it and hope it goes. Um, and I think we'll probably have to to find that out. I think we'll have to wait a little bit longer when the pandemic ends, because in terms of starting new shows, things are going a little bit slowly. They need to catch up and get the, the shows that are already on the air filmed. Um, and there are a couple of other projects we have like that. And of course I'm working on a novel and I've also written a couple of plays, uh, the plays in particular are really going to have to wait a while before right. I can get them produced. Um, I, as I say, I write a lot, um, but my I, but in terms of film and TV, I really expect to be doing TV because it's a, a wider, it's a bigger canvas for a writer to be able to write in TV. And as I say, Ann Packer and I, my wife and I, will be doing that together. That sounds phenomenal. Uh, you are a really gifted writer, Raphael. I really enjoyed oh, this time. I really enjoyed this time speaking with you. Uh, you're everything I thought you'd be in more, and um, just a great, just a great conversation. I really appreciate it. Thank you, Derek. And I-
Yeah, I'm moving in.